Hey, welcome to the 15th episode of Write You a Song. I'm Tom Maley, and I appreciate everybody who takes the time to stream or download this podcast. And I guarantee the songwriters we talk to appreciate it, too. If you're new to Write You a Song, we've got 14 other excellent interviews in the archives with songwriters like Tim Nichols, Liz Rose, Jeffrey Steele, Ashley McBride, Josh Osborne, a bunch of others. And every single one of them is fun to listen to. You realize real quick... Doing this podcast, the songwriters are an entertaining, expressive bunch. Maybe that's why they're songwriters. And none of them have been hesitant to share stories or advice or their individual approaches to their craft. If you like this podcast, I'd love it if you took a moment to rate it and share it with your friends, too. As for this month's guest, I can't even believe he's agreed to come on the show. He's one of the busiest people in not just Nashville, but music in general. He's a producer, a publisher, a mentor, and a coach on the breakout NBC songwriting show, Songland. And since 2010, he's written or co-written over 40 number one songs. Not 40 songs that made it onto the charts, over 40 that topped the charts. That's almost unthinkable. Here's a few of them. Sun, but still a little Hey, he's gifted, yeah, but he's also worked his butt off to get where he is, and he is still grinding. So it's really cool he took time to do this. Shane McAnelly, thank you for joining us today on Write You a Song. Thank you for having me. I'm real excited. I mean, something called Write You a Song seems like it should be easy for me to do. That's what I do. <laughs> You know, um, I was thinking about it, and you ever watch those those cooking shows and they, they show the ingredients that go into this dish or, or that, you know, whatever? Yes, uh, I, I watch them all the time, actually. I love the kids' cooking show, actually. That sounds kind of funny, but that's uh, about as good as I could cook, but not near as good as those kids can cook, and I like watching it with my kids. But what always blows my mind with those shows is that there are, like, certain key ingredients that are common denominators with, like, everything. Um, for example, brown sugar. Until I started watching these shows, it's like, I didn't realize how much brown sugar made the food universe go around. And right. to me, you are that to Nashville songwriting community. You are the brown sugar. To oh, I like it. I mean, I would probably call myself the ginger. <laughs> I really appreciate that. That sounds... Uh, <laughs> I take that as a huge compliment, for sure. <laughs> it's meant to be. I mean, seriously, you look at you know song credits over the last several years, and, and your name is there again and again and again, and not just in a songwriting capacity, in a producing capacity, in a publishing capacity. It's just... It, it's amazing um, how kind of omnipresent you are, and like brown sugar, you make everything better. Oh, wow. Gosh, well, thanks. You need to tell my <laughs> husband that. Thank you. You have said several times that you felt kind of preordained to be a songwriter because you've been writing songs yeah. as far back as you can remember. Correct. Yeah, you know, I just always did it. I just had this conversation with someone because I was talking about my own kids and trying to make sure that they find whatever it is they're great at because I was lucky enough to have... Uh, a few just destined moments that sort of turned me towards music, but it it wasn't something that was natural to anybody else in my family. No one said, oh, play guitar or oh, play piano or you should write songs. I just did it. And I had never seen anyone else do it. 
so it was clearly meant to be. Um, I did find out something really interesting very recently, and I've never even talked about this. So you're getting some super inside scoop. My dad was adopted, and I didn't know that growing up. Um, and I grew up with my, who would I guess be my adopted grandfather. He was my grandfather, and he was McAnally. And we very recently found out about my dad's uh, logical father. And my dad didn't know him, and I had never met him, of course. And we even got some pictures of him as a teenager, and he is holding a guitar at every one of them. Wow. And that just kind of blew my mind because I had never seen anyone in my family who was interested in music like that. So it just shows how sort of there is a nature part of it. It was just in my blood, and it just showed up, you know. It, it is in the DNA. Right. I loved how you were talking about when you were a kid, because I used to do this too. My dad had a big record collection, and then I had older brothers and sisters who also had uh, record collections, and this is back when an album was an album, and it yes. wasn't just about listening. It was about the whole experience of opening the album up and were there going to be pictures inside and were there liner notes, and you were that, you were that kid who, who yes. did that. In some cases, it was better than the record that you were listening to at I the time. I remember more about it a lot of times than I do the music. Mm -hmm. Now, the grandfather who was my grandfather that I knew, that was Buddy McAnally, who, like I said, wasn't my biological grandfather, but who I knew as my grandfather, he had a huge record collection. And I would spend, from a very young age, I would just spend hours in that music room. Now, I couldn't work the record player. I didn't know how to do all that stuff but they would let me just sit in there and look at it like I was looking at a coloring book. Mm -hmm. And um, I would just look at those covers. In fact, I was at um, Martin's Barbecue recently here in Nashville, and I looked up and I saw the cover of the Conway Twitty record, Mr. T. And he's like standing. So the album covers then were so intricate. He's like on a golf course by a Cadillac. <laughs> and... Anyway, I had forgotten about that album cover, and I mean, it just took me right back to the carpet, to the way the room smelled, mm -hmm. to the window, to just looking at that album cover. And um, gosh, I get chills talking about it. I'm actually in my office as, as I'm talking to you right now, and I'm looking at the cover of the Midland um, album mm -hmm. that you know they they do make they do press some records now and seeing my name on the back of it as produced by dan huff shane mcanally and josh osborne and i'm looking at it as i talk to you because one of the things that really resonated with me as a kid is i would see the same names over and over in the produced right. by column and one name i saw over and over was tom collins and he produced um barbara mandrell and ronnie Millsap. Among others, but those two people specifically, I would notice over and over seeing Tom Collins' name. And um, ultimately, when I got to meet Tom Collins years later in Nashville, that was just such a huge deal to me because I had made fake records where I would draw my name as an artist and then I would put produced by Tom Collins. Wow. Because I thought that meant, you know, you must have made it. So anyway, yeah, the, the album art itself is a big part of it. I listened to your your one and only album from 2000 yesterday as I was getting ready for this. That whole album, Shane, is really good. I mean, for that time period, yeah. you, you were in the sweet spot for what country music was at that time. And I'm listening to it like every, I was waiting for some song to kind of just be a clunker. But they were to me, they were all like they would have been hits 
it it's always been a mystery to me why one artist makes it, another one doesn't. And I don't understand why. And I, I'm listening to this album yesterday, and I'm like, why the hell didn't he take off back then? It, it just, yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about that? And I'm sure it, it's sure it had to piss you off at the time. It did actually. Yeah, it's a perfect way to say it. It hurt me. It pissed me off. I worked really hard and a really long time on it. Um, and you know, there's a lot. It just sounds so cliche, but there's just a lot to do with timing. I was on Curb Records at the time. Curb had the biggest roster in Nashville with Tim McGraw, Winona, Leanne Rhymes, Jody Messina. Um, and they were all just red hot. And it just seemed like such a sure bet. And, um, you know, I went on a rigorous radio tour for almost two years. I was on tour with Alabama, who at the time was playing, you know, for 15,000 people. I had the biggest manager in, to- in town. It just seemed like everything was done right. And um, for me personally, I had to kind of spiritually get past my entitlement as to why it didn't work out. And and I think it was because I was on a journey of self-exploration and also I was in the closet. And ultimately, I don't know what would have happened to me personally if that had worked out because I just I wanted it so bad that I wanted it on my terms mm-hmm. and I wanted to keep my sexuality a secret. And um, that never would have worked. If if those songs had become hits and I had become a celebrity at that point in my life, not to sound dramatic, but I'm not sure I would have survived because what followed was a pretty um, heavy uh, alcohol and drug problem. And, uh, you know, I think that all was from the fear of people finding out that I was gay. And um, I just don't think that a career in country music at that moment would have lined up for me. Uh, I just don't, I don't think it would have mattered what the song was or what I had. I think it was about my own journey. It had nothing to do with, um, with the record label, with radio. I was mad at all of them for a really long time. Well, and your the truth is, weren't unfounded because you had Shelley Wright, you had Ty Herndon. Well, and- I was watching what was happening to Ty Herndon, and you know it was right in the middle of that, and so that of course pushed me further into the closet. And uh, yeah, it just it just wasn't it wasn't my time, and it I would I really wouldn't trade it. I, I can't believe I say that now, mean it from the bottom of my heart. I think a lot of times we say I wouldn't change a second of it. I got hurt so many times and was so down for so long, but I know how it showed back up in my work. And I also know now that the relationships I have with artists through my record label, through my publishing company, through the show Songland, I can truly say I have been there. And I think that helps a lot. And and it's not just somebody on the other side of a desk telling you why it might not work. It's somebody who says, look, I know how hard this is. I know how it hurt. I know how you believe in it. But having been there and having gone through it, these are some things that are going to have to change. And the number one thing that it always comes back to is authenticity. People read that. It doesn't matter. You know, we think that uh, that's just a, a, a nice part of the story. They were being themselves. But in order to break through on a, on a bigger stage, to truly have a career, people recognize when you're not being real. And, you know, sometimes there's even people that play characters. When you think of pop stars like Lady Gaga or Madonna, yeah, those people are playing characters. But at the root of all of it, you see who they are. And you also realize they're playing characters. What I was trying to do 
was be someone else. Mm-hmm. And um, I just I don't think people can relate to that. So you don't think you could have had the success that you've enjoyed had you not reconciled with yourself and been completely honest and and just you know went with who you are. Well, I couldn't have written the songs I have. I mean, that's when everything changed for me. When I finally was able to come out and sort of just let go because I just held on so tight for so long to the secret, I had no, I just didn't have any more strength for it. That was when I started having success as a songwriter because I stopped worrying about the pronouns in in co-writing sessions. I stopped going in and trying to tell a story about a female that wasn't really true. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. again, even in co-writes, people, I mean, people knew I was gay. They just didn't want to acknowledge it because I wasn't acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. And so it puts everyone in this state of like putting on a story. And when I shifted that story and surrounded myself with people who just did not care, we we started writing the truth. And then the truth resonates. It doesn't matter if I was writing about a man. It doesn't matter if I'd been writing about a woman. Mm-hmm. It was the truth. And, you know, at the end of the day, Love songs about either pronoun are the same. We hurt the same. We love the same. We heal the same. But it has to come from a place of truth. And, and you've unshackled the real you. You've uh, basically freed the real you to express what's really inside of you. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I wanted. I, I was going to kind of go down the road of, you know, you, you spent seven years in, in L.A., and, and we might touch on that. Yeah. But what you're talking about right now is um, – I, I think this is a, a good point to to bring this up. Uh, I've interviewed, I think, fourteen other songwriters on this show, and and several of them um, have have referenced you. Several have worked directly with you, um, but to a person, they talk about what a unifying person you are. Here's what Brandy Clark said: He's so good at not only seeing talent in others, but in believing and and never stopping his belief. It wouldn't matter if, I think if God came down from heaven and said, you know, Shane, Brandy Clark's just not very good. He would say you're wrong. Well, that, that makes me tear up a little because I, I do think that's not something you choose, meaning that I get a lot of credit for that, uh, especially from Brandy about standing up for an artist or a song that I love. Um, I was given some sort of, I'm, look, I'm scared in most situations. I have had to walk through more fear than just about anybody. But when it comes to knowing something in my gut, I know it. Uh, and it's like if I hear someone sing or I hear a song that I know is right, no one can tell me any different. Not 20 people. I don't care how many times over someone says this just isn't it. I'll just say, I know you're wrong. And it doesn't mean it has to be for everybody, but I know it's for somebody. And that's just a gift of, I don't know what that is called, but but I do believe it is one of, it was something I was born with. Um, and, you know, sometimes I guess it, it could probably work against me because, like I said earlier, I mean, I'll go down in flames for it. It's like everybody around me saying this isn't going to work. I mean, I've, I've been working with an artist named Walker Hayes for years. He doesn't fit the radio. Mm-hmm. I don't know what genre he fits. I just know how I feel when I hear his songs. Um, but people want to put everyone in a box. And they don't want to do things that are hard. And uh, I get it. I'd love for it to be easy. I would love so much for someone just to go. Uh, Walker Hayes is a superstar. I hear it through and through. It hasn't been that way in trying to break him. But it hasn't changed the way I feel about him. She always said of something ever. 
Happy to me, she would never fall in love again. Oh, what a waste. We always said we'd go together, but if I'm just half of her forever, this goes out to whoever takes my place. She don't give two cents about money. Nice little coffee, dinner, honey. Let her sleep late as she wants. Home is her favorite restaurant. Don't you dare come home if you hammer. Better watch your mouth and your grammar. She loves babies, hates glitter. You better shave before you kiss her. And if she ever misses me, please don't let her. And it's the same with Brandy Clark. And Brandy does not fit the standards of what a superstar is. You know, I'm putting quotes around that. Um, she's she's not as young as, as they would like their superstars to be. She um, she also writes and tells her stories pretty specifically on acoustic guitar. And she says a lot of things in her songs that, that are not for the math. You don't need a needle. hear her sing with her guitar something happens in me that i could never i could never deny it it wouldn't matter what someone said about her i would say i just know what i feel and i know other people will feel that too and uh so i you know i'm i'm proud that she sees that in me and i also know it to be true when you can also say the same thing about Casey Musgraves. She's maybe more well known than than Brandy is or, or Walker Hayes but she's another one that you can't put in a box yeah, for sure. You know, the thing about Casey is she looked the part so much that it took years for people to understand that just because you look like what people think the next big thing is supposed to look like does not mean you're going to make the music that sounds like that. I think everyone, myself included, had an idea of who she could be because She's just American, like, royalty. I mean, she just looks like the face of country music. Mm-hmm. She looks right with a guitar. She can really play it. She can really sing. She sounds like Dolly Parton. She's everything we want. But what put people off or confused people was that she wasn't willing to sing songs that weren't completely true to her. And her story was not that everything was... uh Gosh, I don't even know what to say about it. Like, you know, a lot of people would always pitch me songs for Casey and they would have to have like weed references in them or <laughs> D-I-V-O-R-C-E references or things like that. And the truth is, I understand on paper why you think that. She's a country girl from Texas. She speaks her mind. But the thing is, those songs, that just because she has a weed reference in a song doesn't mean that that's her entire story. And she hadn't been divorced. And so, I mean, she ultimately has sang songs about those topics, but my point is she has to feel it and, and, and honestly has missed out on some big hits because of it. I mean, on the first record, 
there were a couple of songs that we wrote early on that were just absolute surefire smashes down the middle that would have worked on the radio. And she knew it and her label knew it. But she said to me, I know that song's a hit, but I cannot sing it for the rest of my life. It does not suit me. And it's not something I want to go on stage every night and be part of my story. And it pissed me off at the time because I'm like, oh, my God, you have this song just sitting there like it will take you to the top. Ultimately, what she was building is her entire story. Now she gets to go out on stage in front of all those people, but only sing songs that do tell her story. And she doesn't have to sing that song that I'm talking about that I still wish she would sing. And, you know, I just respect that so much. She knew herself so well. I I still have never met anyone who knew themselves at that age. Um, You know, I'm talking about when I met her at like 22. I just couldn't believe how settled into her skin she was. She knew what she would and wouldn't do. And she's never compromised. She understood the power of no early, and it takes some people their whole lives to figure that out. Wow. Oh, 100%. I mean, I feel like I learned it through her. I mean, I feel like I was like, oh, my God, if I had known that at 22, when I was making that record over a curve, if I had known what she knows, I would have had a different a different journey, you know? She wasn't even born then. <laughs> See, and I think that speaks to your amazing versatility, which is probably also why so many people relate to you and love working with you and you are kind of a cohesive factor in the Nashville songwriting community because you can you can see the worth of a Walker Hayes or a Brandy Clark or a Casey Musgraves and you can see their value and their integrity and and you can also see because they're not necessarily commercially successful or how we define success these days and yet you can turn around and you can work with somebody who's over the top commercially successful and you can help them become even better too it's amazing how you you're able to switch hats so quickly and, 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 and seemingly effortlessly. Is it that effortless? Well, yeah, because, you know, you can't, you really can't ever know what, what the masses are going to take to, because a lot of times it's not what the, for the reason you would think, or, you know, I, I just, in my mind, Casey Musgraves, she checks every box in a way that I would think she was the biggest star in all of music. Um, and she's not, she's, she's in her lane, in her world. She's exactly where she's supposed to be. And she shines so bright and she brings so many people to our format and beyond. But, you know, there are people that are much bigger stars for whatever reason. And maybe it's because they're more middle. Maybe it's because their story resonates with more people. I don't know what it is, but, when you say that it's easy to switch hats, it's more about just writing the song with them that really cuts to the heart of what they want to say. The one thing, the thread between all of those artists for me is that when I get in a room, we're not trying to write a hit. We're just saying, Hey, what, what's floating in the room today? What's going on in your world? What can we write about? I, you know, over and over, I hear these people tell these stories of like, well, such and such is looking for a hit. I tried that. It never once, never once worked for me. Hmm. I have to write what is going on in either my world or the person sitting across from me's world and get in there. And then that has turned into a lot of hits. But I tried the other way. And I'm a little bit jealous sometimes of people that can go, I'm going to paint my numbers today and I'm going to write a smash for Luke Bryan. I just never have been able to do that. When you were in L.A., is that where you met J.T. Harding? Because he was in LA too. And you guys went on. No, we, we did not know each other in in 
LA, which is so crazy. We actually met in Nashville and um, our stories were just so similar in that we were at the end of the end of the end of the rope, both sides of us. I mean, like we had a mutual friend that I had known from Nashville years before and he had known as well. And we were all three set up to write. I had never met JT, but the three of us were supposed to get together and the third party canceled. Now, normally, because he was the person who tied us all together, the right just wouldn't have happened. But JT and I didn't have a lot of options. And so we got on the phone and we were like, well, he can't do it. He still just want to get together. So we got together and we told each other what was going on in our lives. I had just lost my house in L.A. And I had just gone through a terrible breakup. And he told me that when he left the right that day, he was going to pack up his apartment over off 16th because the building was being torn down. <laughs> and this is all true. And that was the day we wrote Somewhere With You. And all of the things that had to line up for that to happen and what it set in motion for both of us, it just kind of showed, you know, that that was, that was both of our first number one. Kenny Chesney, four week number one. And um, we just showed up. If you're going out someone new, I'm going out someone too. I won't feel Sorry for me, I'm getting drunk, but I'd much rather be somewhere with you. Laughing loud on a car I'm arriving, driving around Saturday night to make fun of me. Singing my song out a hotel room just to turn you on. Said pick me up at 3 a.m. You're fighting with your mom again, and I'd go, I'd go, I'd go somewhere with you. And that's a lot of times what I tell people. Is the biggest is the biggest secret is I just kept showing up and there was no reason that day for me to go. He didn't have success. I didn't have success. Nothing was going on. The guy who was supposed to ride with us, who was actually the hit rider, canceled. And then the two of us got together and wrote this big hit. So, you know, it's just you just show up. Well, and, and I guess that answers a, a question I wanted to ask. You struggled, and so many songwriters have, have the same story. I mean, what kept you going? What? I don't know. I mean, because <laughs> I had nothing else. I mean, I, you know, I was working at a restaurant at that point. When I moved back from L.A., I moved to Nashville. I had nothing. I, I lived on my little sister's couch. She's eight years younger than me. She owned her own house. I slept on her couch. I borrowed her boyfriend's car, and I and I got a job at the restaurant she was working at. At that point, I was 33, and I had had Last Call by Leanne Womack recorded, which is what brought me back to Nashville from L.A. Baby, I still love you. Don't mean nothing when there's whiskey on your breath. That's the only love I get. and it hadn't come out or anything and I would ride with her sometimes to work or sometimes like I said I would borrow her boyfriend's car and one night in the kitchen at the restaurant out in um, Hendersonville um, last call came on the radio in the kitchen and I was just taking food out to people 
And I wouldn't even tell the cooks or any of the people back there that it was my song. Because <laughs> I didn't think you'd believe me. And honestly, I was just embarrassed. It was just like, how did I end up here? I had moved to Nashville at that point 14 years earlier. And... I had had failed record deals, failed publishing deals, and I just didn't want any attention on the fact that I had this song on the radio and I was working at this restaurant. Um, but it, but it is something I also use with young writers when there is a sense of entitlement that happens when something happens for you when you get a publishing deal, no matter how long you've worked for it. Somehow this air of, well, I've made it comes along and that's not usually the case there's a whole lot more involved in getting a record deal or a publishing deal and over and over when i'm working with a writer who's like well i've had a publishing deal for five years i can barely make ends meet i haven't had a hit i say go get another job go get a job at a restaurant go get a job at a coffee shop go get a job that you think you're above and do it as good as you can do it and i've heard this advice before and um actually josh osborne told me that I told him that. I don't remember that, but but he lost his publishing deal about eight years ago before he'd had any hits. And um, he was telling me, like, look, he's married. He's been doing this at that point for over a decade. And he said, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I, nobody wants to sign me. And I said, go to Starbucks. Go to Starbucks and just work there and just see what happens. And he did it, which most of the time people don't actually do it. He went, he got an application, he filled it out, he was starting the next day, and he got a publishing deal. And that really did happen. And it's just showing the universe, showing God whatever you believe, that you're available. It's like, show up, and, and the other doors will open. But sometimes staring at that door will keep it from opening. While you were going through this, were you ever looking at the clock? Were you ever glancing yes, apprehensively the at day. the calendar? <laughs> All the time. I was comparing myself to everybody in their age um, because I just thought, what, how am I going to catch up? Uh, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to be able to support these people. I wanted to be able to support myself. You know, a decade ago, just 10 years ago, my tax return for that year was $12,000. And in a decade, I've had 41 number ones. I mean... Uh, who you know it's all I guess retroactive or something but I was until that started to happen and even then I mean in the middle of my big run through my late 30s I was still like felt like I was so far behind everyone else at my age um but it, it just had to happen the way it happened and I and I certainly do I do not compare my age anymore to people um I'm 45 I keep saying 44 but I turned 45 last week and, uh, you know, I guess in my mind, I just think I'm halfway to 90. So I, I've got uh, <laughs> a, another 40 plus number ones to write. Is the fire still as bright? No, I, it's a different kind of fire. Um, it's a it's a slow burn, I think, now. Um, I am really trying to ease into some other projects. I think showing up for 10 years and writing a lot of days twice a day um, just to feed that fire that part of it has it's simmered a little um certainly having kids 
I want to spend time with them. It's not like that feeling of like, oh, I've done it, but I want to do other things. I'm working on a Broadway musical with Brandy Clark that we've been working on for a few years. That really inspires me because the songs are different. You get to tell the story in a different way, and there really are no rules. And so having written in the country music field for a while, you know, if you want to have hits, there are some rules. But writing for Broadway, there are none, and I've really enjoyed that sort of no fences approach. Yeah, the the, the musical, is, is it kind of loosely based on the old TV show Hee Haw? Is that, do I have that right? Well, that's where it started. You know, we initially were... Um, writing something loosely based on the old show Hee Haw. As the years have gone on and as the characters have changed, there's less Hee Haw in it and more just hometown. Um, And it's a story, so it's not just, you know, Hee Haw was more of a vaudeville variety type show. This is more of a story. Um, And it's just the story of community and, and finding out that, like so many stories, that home a lot of times is where your heart is. And even if you leave, you have to remember where you came from, and even if you don't end up back there, you um you take a lot of that with you, and uh, it resonates with me. And I've just enjoyed writing songs for that so much, and I've got a movie project uh, in the in the very far wings that I'm super excited about uh, that I'm just getting started on, and it's a musical as well. And uh, you know the publishing part of this and getting to really mentor that word always sounds so I don't know self righteous mentoring people, but it's not to mentor someone to teach them how to write songs. It's to teach them how to write songs smartly to where they use their time in a way that they're not just spinning their wheels and that they're able to really dig in and tell their truth because that's the only way they're going to write anything original is by telling their story. So I've gotten to really sort of use, use that experience on the show Songland. And, and congratulations on Songland being renewed for another season. Um, Thank it, you. It's a fascinating show to watch for anybody who loves music. And we've speculated, are we going to look up like 10, 15 years from now? And is, you know, like the profession of songwriting, will it have changed somewhat because of the influence that your show has had? Because you kind of cut out the middleman and, and the years of desperation for some of these people. And for others who maybe never make it onto the show, they at least see what the craft is really all about and, and how hard they have to work. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I don't know how much it'll change the, the overall genre of songwriting. It's, you know what I've noticed? It's just like when I came to Nashville, I was 19 years old. I got a publishing deal within six months of being here and I had a record deal within a year and it, I thought I was going to be fast tracked. Um, I just thought everybody talks about this 10 year town. And I was like, well, you know, maybe it's just different for me. Maybe all the years I put in on the Opry circuit, and all of those things have just counted towards this. And yeah, I had a, a lot of big breaks early on, but it, it ultimately caught up with me. And those 10,000 hours that people talk about, I certainly put them in before I had any big success. And I think the same is going to go for the people on Songland. I think it's a big moment for them. And I think that some of them are going to see some some pretty uh, you know big results right away from it, as we've seen already. But they're still going to have to put the time in and they're still going to show up and they're still going to have some hard things show up. Um, and I also don't believe it has to be hard. Um, that's a, well, that sounds weird, but I've come to the conclusion that a lot of times things are hard because we believe they have to be. Um, I think that it can be fun and educational and that you can really just roll with it. I wish I had enjoyed it more. 
So instead of saying there's going to be hard times, mm-hmm. I should just say there's going to be time, and it is going to take what it takes. Uh, I don't think that being on Songland is going to jump anybody to the head of the line. It may give them a temporary flash, but the time put in is is still part of it. All right. Now, we've got just a few minutes left, and you've been more than gracious with your time. I want to get to a couple of things here real quick. First, I want to ask you just okay. some quick kind of rapid-fire questions. Um, and this is this is a question I, that, that popped into my head yesterday when I was listening to your album. Um, you have one song on there. Uh, I think it's called I Could Have Told You That. And there's a line, only he knows what I'm missing, which I thought was a great line. And yeah. I want, do you ever part out songs? Do you ever go back and, and, and reach back to a song that maybe never got cut, um, never got recorded, but there was a great line or two from there that would fit in perfectly with this? Or is it always new all the time? No, I definitely steal from old songs. I'm more likely to steal from a song that I wrote by myself. That way I don't feel like there's any question of where the line came from. So unless it was 100% something that I know I came up with Mm -hmm. and that I wouldn't feel like the previous co-writers would feel slighted by, um, I wouldn't take it. Like in that song, I don't know who came up with that line. Um, But I do steal from songs that I've written by myself because a lot of times they were based on something that didn't work at all as a whole song, but there might be one line that I'm like, man, that was really good. I wish I could have written a better song around it. So the answer is yes. What's your, what's your most personal song? What's a song that recorded by somebody else, you're listening to it and what you're hearing is like Shane McAnally, your story, who you really are. Is there one? There is. It happens so often, but it especially happens in the beginning of the sort of run of songs that started to be hits for me. And the one that comes to mind is Somewhere With You by Kenny Chesney. I just had gone through a really bad breakup and something that I knew wasn't good for me. And uh, JT Harding was in a similar situation, and we just kind of told each other's truth. And what's funny is it's a vague song, and it sounds like it would work for a lot of different people. But when I hear it, I still feel a little bit like someone's reading my diary. What is a lyric um, or even a, a stanza, a verse that you're really proud of? Yeah, it's in the song Vice by Miranda Lambert. And um, it, the lyric is, um, if you need me, I'll be where my reputation don't precede me. Is a cliche idea. It even goes back to like the Cheers theme song, you know. 
except it's the opposite in the Cheers theme song. You want to go where everybody knows your name. <laughs> right. And in this one, it's uh, where uh, you want to go where nobody knows your name. And um, I think that song, I've talked to so many songwriters who say, um, I just wish I could just go somewhere and just, I don't know, work at a bed and breakfast and not have to worry about the pressures of the music business. And that line, if you need me, I'll be where my reputation don't precede me. That just tells me I'm going to go somewhere and erase the past. A songwriter that you just completely look up to, and it could be from any era. It could be now, it could be 50 years ago. Oh, God, there's so many. But, I mean, I have to say Merle Haggard um, because I do think he he was the really the one who started telling such detail about his personal life that it was almost hard to believe. And he opened the door for the rest of us to do that. The warden led a prisoner down the hallway to his doom. And I stood up to say goodbye like all the rest. And I heard him tell the warden just before he reached my cell. Let my guitar play in friend to my request. Let him sing me back home with a song I used to hear and make my old memories come alive. All right, and I just want to uh, name three or four songs real quick and just kind of get the Cliff Notes story behind the song. And these are just some of my favorites of, of yours that uh, you've written okay. or co-written. Uh, Smoking and Drinking. Yes, uh, so that was with Natalie Hemby and Luke Laird. And Luke and Natalie just have such an easy vibe. Luke had this amazing track. And Natalie was just singing, Smoking and Drinking on the weekend to me that was all you needed when i heard her sing that i was like i don't really care what goes around that it gives me it's like i want to put my my hands in the air but i also want to cry that's my favorite feeling because if i'm dancing but i'm also crying and that's what that song does it was one of those girls and one of those guys who didn't know quite what to do we were going along with what was going on saying i think i love you Think about us now. Every time that I go out, smoking and drinking, smoking and drinking on the weekend, like we did back in the day. Smoking and drinking, get you thinking about the one that got away. Wish you all those nights, all we felt. Uh, young and Crazy. Young and Crazy. I wrote that with Red Akins and with Ashley Gorley. And I remember the title came from, we did not have a title. And Red Akins read that line on Twitter. And it was like, uh, you know, something about, how am I ever going to be able to lie if I never get to be young and crazy? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes a, what I call a bumper sticker line like that is really hard to write in, a, in an authentic way. Because it's like you can tell started with that line but um with those guys getting in a room hard i mean it's kind of hard to lose honestly if we couldn't have turned that into a hit i should have just moved away one day i'll 
flowing way down. Spend my weekends in a swing out on the wraparound. Oh, but these days I'm on a mission to get these wild oats out of my system. Yeah, I might stay out all night. I gotta do a little wrong so I know what's right. I wanna sit out on the porch telling stories about my glory days when I'm pushing 80. How am I ever gonna get to be old and wise if I ain't ever young and crazy? Uh, kiss tomorrow goodbye. That was on a road trip. Really funny story, actually, because I, I got on the bus with Luke Bryan and his producer, Jeff Stevens, and I was terrified. Um, I did not know Luke, and he was just coming off some really big hits. And uh, I had a few ideas that I threw out the first day, and they all fell completely flat. Nothing worked. I like played a little chorus I had come up with. I threw out some hooks. Luke just was not into any of them. And thank God Jeff Stevens had the title, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, and that guitar riff and Luke was like I like that and then we just went and when we had the love me like you love me when you love me and you didn't have to try when we had that it was like okay we have it and and I, I left there feeling semi-confident but then I ran into Luke at the ACM Awards uh, probably six months later and it's actually the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> hey we just cut the shit out of that song it's gonna be a big hit and I was like I could barely remember the title, and I was so nervous and so excited, and I couldn't remember if I'd already washed my hands, so I didn't want to shake his hand. So I think I high-fived it. <laughs> I hope he didn't give you stage fright. <laughs> he would. He would, but he's so hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Man, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for doing this. I can't wait to hear it. I really appreciate it, and I love your show. Thank you. Continued success. Thanks. Bye-bye. Just didn't work. That's a wrap for another episode of Write You a Song. We are a production of Bonneville Communications International. This podcast is produced at KNCI Radio in Sacramento, California. I'm your host, Tom Maley. If you have questions, comments, or you have a guest idea, just hit me up on Twitter. I'm at KNCI Tom, at KNCI Tom. And next month, a young lady out of Canada who is the epitome of hard work paying off. Her debut album debuted at number one. She recently notched her first number one single to duet with Brantley Gilbert called What Happens in a Small Town. She can not only sing, she shreds on a guitar, and she's a hell of a songwriter.
Michelle, next time on Write You a Song. I still don't